Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Today, special guest scholar and musician Yuri Campbell returns to review the lessons we learned from Nate's discussions with Ed Ward about his book, The History of Rock and Roll, Volume 2, 1964 to 1977, The Beatles, The Stones, and the Rise of Classic Rock. Nate and Yuri evaluate Ward's attempt to summarize the history of rock and roll from the mid-60s to the early 70s, acknowledge the many things Ed got right, and mull a couple of things that Ed may have missed. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and once again, we're joined by Yuri Campbell, PhD, to discuss what have we learned from Ed Ward's History of Rock and Roll, Volume 2, 1964 to 1970-something. It's not 77, kind of 74, kind of 75. Anyway, welcome back, Yuri. Thanks for having me, Nate. Always a treat. So I think the best way to do this is divide the thing into big chunky topics and the first one that, that i think comes through in the book well first off i want to acknowledge ed ward and how much i've learned from him and how grateful i am that he took the time to talk with me about his books for this long i've been a big fan of his ever since the 1980s rolling stone history of rock and roll when he covered the the 50s and the period before that which was easily the best part of the book and enjoyed obviously his rock and roll history volume one and volume two so with that out of the way, the first issue that the book really gets across is the impact of the baby boom, the sheer demographics, the the python swallowing a deer effect of on the music business of this enormous coterie of what were young people in the 60s and what are now elderly folks still around having, a, having an outside influence on the culture. Um, the massive growth in revenue from singles, first single sales and then album sales as this demographic matured, um, really defines the whole book. Yeah, I mean, he definitely does a good job of, of talking about uh, sort of the, the, the takeover of not just the 
the artistic aspects of, of rock and roll, but a lot of the business aspects as well. And a lot of the sort of ephemeral surrounding dynamics too. I mean, especially once he starts getting into things like, uh, you know, rock and roll magazines, the rock and roll print media and that sort of thing. And he, he I, I thought he did a pretty good job of, uh, of covering the way that the shift in, you know, sort of business control and control of the money and the control of presentation of personas and all that kind of stuff, uh, uh, Sort of, sort of carried with it some of the 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 changes in attitude that you know young people had and and the the generations that followed uh, World War II and that sort of made up the youth of the post-war era and uh, that was definitely one of the interesting things to to watch him explain you know especially when he was talking about like British youth and their uh, their sort of sense that their time had come and that they weren't going to suffer the way their parents had, you know, that it was time to, to begin to live again, you know, after all of the, the sacrifice that had been suffered, you know, in England through the two world wars and the, the depression and all that. So he, he definitely does a great job of that. And it's, you know, I think that's also something that's pretty clear is that, is that the baby boomers, they just, they come like this wave yeah, and they wash everything forward with yeah. the sheer mass. <laughs> and they drown it. And I, although the generational split kind of hits the book as well, I mean, Ed describes the split between, you know, pop and rock There's that starts in 67 and is really ironclad by, say, 1969 when you've got the Archies on the one hand and Led Zeppelin on the other, um, but also the split between hard rock and soft rock, between uh, white rock and black rock, which, which you know, are very unified, <clears throat> as integrated as we ever got, say, in 65. But by 69, 70, 71, it's bifurcated again. And part of that was business reasons. Part of that was racial prejudice. And part of it was, I think, something organic in the culture where people were, I think, happy that integration had happy with what had been accomplished, but also seeing some of the downsides. And so there's a backlash, I think, on the parts of both African-Americans and Anglo-Americans and kind of a dis mutual distancing. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I always get the sense that the artists, you know, when they're trying to, to create songs or music or, you know, uh, especially in, in the music realm, I guess I should say, is that, you know, many of them don't really care about race and segregation and, and all those things, right? But you do have marketing and, and you do have, uh, a ten, you, I think you see a tendency in, in the handling of the business end to sort of reflect, you know, the reality of the way the, the people that they're trying to sell their product to, the way the, they, those people live. And uh, I think that, that, you know, there arose out of the civil rights movement and, and you know, and the post-war era, this desire on the part of, of many, you know, young white people to try and achieve some progress toward a closer understanding of, of African-Americans, especially. 
and you had you had it, it, it could be expressed in 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 these terms that that were you know well black people are just like us you know you had this book that came out called Black Like Me uh, where this uh, this journalist you know colors his skin and lives like a black person in the South right to try and see what that is like to to really get in there and there was a, a television show uh, a white paper is what they called it like a news program where the camera followed around, uh, I think they were in Memphis, and they followed around, you know, young African-Americans trying to sit at, 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 um, at, at counter, you know, sit at their places at counter so they can have hamburgers and these kind of things and, and just live like normal people. But the camera, like, situates the audience amongst the African-Americans, you know, you know, making these demands for equal treatment and just sort of normal treatment, regular treatment. And so you have these kind of efforts to... Uh, uh, to 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 share the point of view, you know, or to to achieve some sort of cross racial perspective, and you saw a lot of artists doing the same thing, you know, listening to like Mike Bloomfield talk about, you know, being a, a, a upper middle class Midwestern Jewish kid, you know, trying to figure out who his identity, you know, who he's going to be, what his identity is going to be made of, and he he decides that he you know has this sort of associative, affiliative connection to African-Americans until, you know, the deeper he gets into it and he ends up going to, um, this isn't in the book, by the way, but this is just like sort of my perspective on, on this particular question of segregation and, and, and rock and roll. He, he goes down to East St. Louis, uh, and you may have covered this when talking yeah. with Ed about his book on Michael. Yeah, Ed Jackson. covers this he in goes, the Bloomfield book. Right. And so he goes down to, to, East St. Louis, and and he's just appalled at, at you know the, the the squalor and the living conditions you know that at least the poverty stricken African Americans in in that area were experiencing. And you get the sense that yeah, I I still love the blues and I still love playing guitar and and I respect you know the artistry of these guys, but I have to sail away from this. I can't live like this. And you start hearing. Those type of that that type of feedback, you know, you hear Iggy Pop talk about, you know, his his foray to Chicago and, and hanging out with Chicago bluesmen, and coming away thinking, I just can't do that. I can't I can't reproduce that. What I'm going to have to do is find some other sort of voicing for myself, and uh, you know that comes out in, in other other musicians who who come to prominence. Subsequent to 67, 68, you know, like Johnny Ramone says some of these similar type of things. I mean, he has respect for black rock and rollers, et cetera. He talks about growing up in black neighborhoods or, or neighborhoods that were that were integrated and partially black. But at the same time, you know, he wants he, he, he wants the music he's going to create with what ends up being the Ramones to sort of not be blues based. And, and this is in part because he has this idea, you know, whether correct or not, that that rock and roll is something that comes mostly from white culture, or, or if you want to put it that way, or, or, or country music, and not as much from from black people. And I, I think that you know the the types of the types of curiosity and, and the desire to erase racial lines, maybe, and to, to have a more democratized, egalitarian society, et cetera, that you see in the, in the 50s and the early 60s in the civil rights 
movement, I think that there's some parallel with these efforts on young white people uh, to find these old blues guys and to, to get get recorded, get them recorded for our Hooli and, and blues films and that sort of thing. And I, I think that it's just the, the, the answer is the closer they get, the more they start to say, wow, this is not as easy as just like saying, oh, we're all just the same. You know, we're all we're all humans. And in fact, what you have are these, you know, more complicated and, and more difficult to erase social structures. And that as rock and roll becomes more complicated and, and more more diverse artistically selling it starts to more and more reflect, you know, just the difficulty of trying to, uh, trying to integrate as a, as a nation, you know, we had, we, we, as a nation, we ran into a sort of wall right about 68, 69, I would say, where we just weren't able to, it's, it's easier to say, you know, we're not going to allow discrimination, et cetera, to be on the books, so to speak. It's easier to do that than it is to say, okay, now we're all going to live together, you know, and go to school yeah. together and all these kind of things. Absolutely. And two things I, I want to get at from what you just said. The first is on Bloomfield. He also had an experience of, you know, being in a band, the electric flag where the other dominant personality was Buddy Miles, who was African-American and, and they have this massive split some people ascribed it to, you know, basically a split between junkies and acid freaks, Bloomfield in one category, Buddy Miles in the second. And, but it was also, I think, somewhat racial in that Bloomfield had the luxury or privilege of not wanting to be a rock star. He was repulsed by the fan adulation and the sort of mindless crowds. And he was really offended and put off by Buddy Miles, just shameless. Uh, seeking the spotlight, you know, Buddy Miles was somebody right. who was charismatic and and wanted to be a star, and um, you know, and I and I think you know Buddy Miles has been critically shellacked for about fifty years. I think he's a little better than his critical reputation, and but I, I don't think there's any doubt that Electric Flag fell short of its potential for various reasons. But the second thing is you see it really dramatically in the story of Sly and the Family Stone, which is is the one group that I think that did the best job of personifying this integrated spirit, this positive black, white, male, female coming together and making this joyous music. And then after the assassinations in 1968 and all the riots and the emergence of black nationalism in this ugly period when a lot of artists are basically being blackmailed to change their management or to, you know, not not work with white musicians or not work right. with white record companies. And Sly's response is to go back to his home neighborhood and get the toughest guys he knows to surround himself with. And that devolves into just straight up gangsterism to the point where, you know, a couple <laughs> years later, he and Larry Graham have have competing cliques. Both sets have guns and bodyguards and, you know, there's pimps uh, in their close circle. And, and of course, the cocaine addiction that destroyed Sly, uh, you know, for the next five decades. So I wanted to get that out there. But the next thing on this generational split is where I think – Ed has the most difficulties in this book is because he's on the wrong side of that line, as you might say. He's in that coterie that was slightly older, that was there for the 50s, that was very much there for the 60s development of rock, that were the people that made it happen, you know, as fans and listeners and, and writers. 
as the Beatles and Dylan and, and James Brown and Motown and all these people are in this competition and, and they're competing together and bringing, you know, synthesizing this new music that came to be called rock. Then in the late 60s, suddenly Led Zeppelin comes along and people like Ed are just viscerally offended. They're offended by the crass plagiarism. They're offended by the the just absolute sensualism of the music. I mean, it's just overwhelming, loud volume and power. It's this corruption and denigration of the blues, although it's you know creating a new form. If you're somebody who loved the blues and the subtlety of the blues, like Bob Dylan said, you know, they, they lost the role. They got the rock, but they lost the role. All right. And so I think Ed, um, in some ways, struggles with that. And, and you know, when I look back on, on my interviews with Ed on this, I, I, I really regret not calling him out on things like dissing the Doors or Pink Floyd. It's kind of like, who cares? You know, <laughs> like, that's not relevant <laughs> to our project. You know, I mean, obviously, the Doors were this massively successful, culturally significant entity, no matter what anybody individually thinks of their music. And I'm not trying to impose tastes on anybody but the doors matter you know people like Iggy Pop and Patti Smith definitively do that and and something like Pink Floyd I mean you know no Pink Floyd and I'm not talking about Sid Barrett Pink Floyd I'm talking about the Roger Waters David Gilmore Pink Floyd you know no Pink Floyd no U2 no Radiohead I mean it's clearly massively significant innovative music and critics of Ed's generation have had a really hard time with that like even Chris Gow to this day can't give somebody like Tool a decent review, even though they're clearly, you know, <laughs> yeah. a well-regarded metal band. It's just the whole concept of hard rock was never accepted by that coterie of journalists. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, there's, there are so many sort of uh, uh, splintered subcategorical rock and roll threads that kind of end up exploding out of the early 60s, you know, and so by the time you get to the end of the, of the period of time covered by this book, I mean, there's just a wide range of, of these subgenres, and, and, and that sort of drags along with these, these generational splits and, and also these sort of subcultural splits. And, you know, in reading the book, you, you, you definitely uh, get the sense that Ed doesn't love or or maybe perhaps even as more importantly doesn't fully understand or or, or sort of or, or appreciate uh the things you're talking about like hard rock or or you know the, his dismissiveness of pink floyd was almost amusing you know we get almost all the way to the end of this book and he he had briefly touched on earlier pink floyd and then he returns to you know, almost begrudgingly say, well, I guess I need to say something about uh, uh, Dark Side of the Moon, I guess in part because, you know, part of it looks like his formula is to kind of come through uh, releases that are really successful. And so you get to Dark Side of the Moon, you just must say something about that. But he, you know, I think he described it as droning or something like that. And I was like, "What?" I'm, yeah, dirge-like. I think is, is right. And, and, the, and the only thing that he that he liked about it was like the backing vocal on, you know, the one song, <laughs> which I, I was just going, "Oh my gosh!" But you know, there's all kinds of those those little uh, idiosyncratic. Uh, sort of nudges that he takes at, at various of the artists that come later on. And by the, by the time the book ends, you know, I was, I was kind of like, I, just, I don't think he, he really cares much about any of this. I mean, I, I thought he made really good use of like Lester Bangs to 
sort of describe, you know, the uh, sort of appearance on the scene of these attitudes and in, in these perspectives of, of yet another oncoming generation who were tired of the Fleetwood Macs, you know, of, of the story of, of, you know, these people in flowing gowns on the rock and roll stage, uh, self-indulgently, you know, working there, you know, Emerson, Lake and Palmer and all these kind of things. Right. And we've, at this point, I think we've, many of us have heard, you know, the complaints of, of bloated self uh, the complaints of rock and roll fans regarding, you know, mid to late seventies bloated rock and roll and, you know, the onset of disco and, and all this kind of thing. I thought he did a good job with bringing Lester Bangs in there and talking about people that started to sense that rock and roll had lost some of its visceral, you know, content had lost some of its ability to, to make you want to dance, to make you want to, you know, have sex, make you want to fight these kind of things. Uh, and, and that, uh, they wanted to see something that also, you know, carried the possibility of being transgressive and, and transformative. And they thought, you know, you get, like, he has one quote from Lester Bank that does a great job of kind of poetically almost summing up this desire to see rock and roll, like be more performatively successful and providing, transgression and, and transformation as it was as it seemed like it had, had sort of tried to say that these artists of the 60s put on a show that suggested they were going to make these cultural changes and then they just all bailed right and, and, and yeah. they took like i said they took the role with them uh and and lester bangs which just has these great quotes in, in the book but uh other than that he it, the book's if, if you ask me, and I don't want to denigrate the book or whatever, because I think there's still a lot of great information in it throughout, right? But by yeah. the end of the book, you know, Ed seems to be definitely on the outside looking in and isn't really sure how to, to properly represent that because a lot of what's coming on is right, is, is you know, active and even has a bit of the spotlight you know, by the mid seventies. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, photo and punk and photo rap and stuff like that. And let's hear a song and, and then talk about one of the things I thought that did remarkably well in the book. And this is the whalers with Mr. Brown. Before it was Bob Marley and the Whalers doing Mr. Brown, and and I thought the one section where Ed really comes alive, I think he's very strong in, in the in the mid '60s section. Don't get me wrong, but but he really shines in his explication of the of the beginnings of reggae, and I think that it is because the patterns that he identifies in his '50s or his early rock and roll book of how scenes that matter emerge. Reggae checks all those boxes. It's a minority uh, group that's way outside the mainstream. There's independent business aspect, independent record labels, independent DJs. Um, there's technological innovation. You know, reggae was the first medium 
the first music medium that was primarily DJ driven. I mean, the, the Whalers didn't play right. as a band until they got, you know, Island Records put them together a band and put them on the road. They, they were making records in the studio and those records then lived, reached their audience with these sound systems that played around Jamaica. And I think that Ed was sort of hamstrung by our labeling and our perception of rock and roll as by the 70s, a white musician guitar driven music and wow. when what's ed's really interested in is not just african-americans but primarily african-americans innovating new forms with new technology and so like to me the logical thing the logical threads to follow from the first book by the early 70s are not just reggae but also disco and hip-hop and he talks about disco a little bit but he treats it as um, a, a studio rock and roll form, you know, recorded with live bands right. and, and doesn't get into the way that disco was presented to its audience by DJs as records that were then manipulated by the DJs at the clubs and on the radio. And so he kind of misses the point there. And I know he's yeah, well I, aware I, of it. Well, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, well, I, I get the sense and I, I've, I don't want to make this as a you know sound definitive, but I get the sense that Ed kind of comes from that that generation who does want to see sort of integration and and uh, uh, assimilation these type of things between the races. I mean, one of the things I thought was really really good about his management of the 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 onset of reggae. I mean, he does do a great job of, of summarizing that, and he, and he brings in all the players, and, and he's able to, you know, talk about the important songs and and some of the, even the minutia of, of the music. But he does a great job of also talking about, not only does he go outside the United, you know, the sort of access, the Atlantic access, so to speak, uh, between Britain and the United States, but he talks about, like, Chinese Jamaicans being important parts of, of, of the creation of this new form, right? And and I definitely get the sense that uh, Ed likes to, or he's drawn to these stories, and he doesn't he doesn't hammer you over the head with this, but it's it's something that's subtly present in both of the books, and that is that uh, you know you have the, this this kind of cross racial sharing of ideas and business sense. And, and, and a desire to bring these sort of cultural artifacts into the commercial realm. And that this is something that is a desire that's shared by, by individuals of different races and even different sexes. And he does a great job of that when, when, talking, about, uh, when talking about reggae. And I agree with you on that front, you know. Yeah. Uh, so and he does a good really job of weaving together the story, I mean, even for artists that he clearly doesn't like, whether it's Pink Floyd or Leon Russell, and some of those I agree with, you know, um, he does a great job of weaving every pearl onto the thread. Like, I, I was really watching him like a hawk and, and waiting for him to miss somebody. I thought for a while that he had missed Free, for example, and, and you know, but sure, <laughs> sure enough, he, he gets a mention in there and, and checks yeah. him off, even if he yeah. doesn't, you know, maybe. Uh, but in, in connection with their hit, though, right? Like, yeah. They 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 kind of pop up because I I think because they made it onto the chart somewhere and he just all right there we go yeah 
Yeah, yeah, he's very much, you know, his methodology is is going back and reading Billboard, going through the Billboards methodically, as, right. as well as the old Rolling Stone archives, plus Crawdaddy and Cream, plus his memories, you know, having lived it. And I think that, you know, the difference between the first volume and the second volume is just how much more vividly he was living it uh, with the, the 50s yeah. rock and roll and the 60s rock and roll. And also, he's somebody who reacted to the rock and roll bloat and i totally have sympathy for him as a journalist you know making pennies getting to see led zeppelin in person and seeing just the obscene amounts of money and drugs and sex that that are going around there and being morally repulsed and 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 he his response was to dive into the five royales you know and 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 these old r&b records you know and gospel records and things like that and that's so much of his gift as a music historian has become because of that kind of stepping outside of his own time and, and choosing to, to look in the past, but it definitely impacts his, his covering of this era. And as somebody who's kind of, for whatever reason, taken on the mantle of wanting to expand on his work of take his basic methodology and, and, and I use the pattern recognition that he's taught me to try to expand into more eras, including eras that I'm not comfortable in and I don't understand viscerally. And so you know, it's it's a lot of pitfalls to watch out as I, as we expand this project together. But let's talk a little bit about the business aspects that he goes into. I mean, first off, the the most obvious one is the changes in radio in this period. When when the book starts, it's all about AM radio, and it's a very sort of naive pop culture, just as it had been in the '50s when when the Beatles and the Dave Clark Five and and others, you know, invade. But by the late 60s, AM radio has been stultified by the emergence of Top 40, which formula, you know, like DJs no longer get to pick what records they're playing. And, you know, there's this the pressure to avoid payola, at, which is when the DJs are bribed by record companies to play certain records. Uh, and there's also the recognition on the part of the suits that, you know, people like the same songs and, and given their druthers, they'll pick the same 40 songs over and over again. And, and, and it's a, you know, very much a craft. And I respect that craft of identifying what is popular at the moment and feeding it to people. But as we see with algorithms, when you feed people just what they think they want, ultimately people want more than that. People want to be surprised and people want to learn and people want to grow and people want to hear things that they don't like at first. And so FM radio becomes this oasis uh, where it, nobody's looking and it's not commercial and DJs have all this latitude and that sinks in with the change from singles to albums and the demographic grows up from preteens to teens to college students and rock takes over from folk and jazz as the serious music art form for college students right and it, and it it seems like if if you know you go from uh, uh, singles, which are kind of meant to provide you know an opportunity to dance, and you it, and and it seems like dancing becomes less and less and less important as as the story goes on, right? Yeah. And and instead, kind of forging through the artistic possibilities of of rock and roll and the electric guitar and these new keyboards that be, start to show up on the scene, you know, that becomes much more, uh, uh, the focal point and the songs get, tend to get longer and more self-indulgent and all this sort of thing. And that, that kind of dovetails with this opportunity to play some of these longer songs. I and mean, I think he, 
you know, one of the things he says about Led Zeppelin is he points out that, you know, they have this great hit that never mind you don't even think about dancing to it. They don't even put a single out of Stairway to Heaven, right? Yeah. It, it's this long song that just ends up on the radio and, and, and you get the sense that, you know, FM radio and the arrival of, of and of course, at this point, we're talking about music that was on the radio. This is like when I was a kid, when we were, you know, we're both in our youth, riding the bus to school or whatever, listening to the same songs over and over again, you know, and, and being absolutely pounded senseless by the song Stairway to Heaven. Uh, you know, you, you, the, the position that rock and roll has in all this uh, becomes so much more centralized, it seems to me, with FM radio. And AM radio gets absolutely kind of wiped aside if you're, you know, a young, hip kid, whether, you know, you want to listen to the coolest soul music and the coolest funk music or whether you want to listen to the latest rock and roll, you know, you do not listen to AM radio. Yeah. I think. Go ahead. I mean, uh, not to jump in, but like, you know, AM radio is like if you're a nine-year-old in 1969 that's into the Archies, AM radio's got you covered. A few years later, if you're into the Bay City Rollers, um, you know, AM radio has got you covered. And, And that's another thing that I think, um, Ed sort of doesn't cover as well as he could have is the explosion of glam rock in the UK because artists like right. T-Rex and I'm going to go ahead and queue up T-Rex ride a white song ride a white swan uh, and okay. let's hear that and we'll talk about glam right here like, like a bird in the sky was riding on out like you were a bird flying on out like an eagle in a sunbeam riding on out like you were a bird we're a tall hat like a druid in the old days we're a tall hat and a tattooed gown ride a white swan back the people of a bell team where you head long and that was T-Rex, Mark Boland's band, formerly Tyrannosaurus Rex. But they changed the name when the single came out, Ride a White Swan. And this changed their commercial fortunes in the UK. Prior to this, they'd been a folky acoustic guitar and bongo combo that you know toured the US relentlessly and was underground in England. And suddenly he picks up the electric guitar, gets a drummer and a bassist, and uh, puts some eyeshadow on. And electrifies England on top of the pops, but America has no analog for that. Essentially, after Ed Sullivan goes off the air, and Ed Sullivan had been struggling with rock, you know, with censoring the doors, or trying to censor the doors, successfully censoring the Rolling Stones, and, you know, artists like James Brown are cut off from the radio, from AM radio, essentially, after he puts out I'm Black and I'm Proud, and so you know, but in England, a new generation of pop stars comes along that keeps rock and roll alive, even though the critics hate it. Um, but glam rock is something that, especially through the emergence of David Bowie, really points the way to the to punk rock and the future of English right. pop. And I, I thought Ed did a pretty good job of handling Bowie. You know, I, I think Bowie's a, a sort of easily mishandled persona. And I think his music is easy to either dismiss or to to sort of go overboard and, and praise with his with his music. But I thought he did a really good job of handling Bowie. So it was 
it, it, and he does bring up T-Rex, but he doesn't seem to, to grasp the, you know, the importance of, of the arrival of David Bowie as this kind of voice for, you know, sort of the last cultural group to gain access to, to the steering wheel of rock and roll, which are the people who aren't from, you know, they're not trying to get into the mainstream per se. I mean, I'm not saying that David Boyd don't want to be popular. I'm not saying that T-Rex, et cetera, but the, their fans are these people that are, are sort of marginalized. And that's the voicing that they're going to start bringing to this, you know, and in, in America, we do have some analog for that. We do have, uh, you know, the Velvet Underground who, you know, I, th- I th- always think it's interesting to think of the Velvet Underground playing the Peppermint Lounge, you know, within 12 or 13 months of the Beatles going there on their first American tour and, and, and seeing how, how sort of quickly this, this desire to begin expressing these really outsider points of view come, uh, comes to the fray in rock and roll. But by the time glam comes, that's like very much the centerpiece of what's going on is this, this, these marginal voices and, and this desire to get to that kind of visceral uh, transformative and transgressive rock and roll again, you know, that Lester Bangs is talking about. So he, 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 he points out what Lester Bangs says, but he doesn't, you know, he does. There's just like one last step to go before you can really set up the arrival of of punk rock, which in the book he he does by noting that you know somebody is writing about Elvis Presley on the day that he dies and says that there's only one Elvis left now. You know, I guess obviously referring to Elvis Costello, but that's as close as he comes to even mentioning punk rock or what's coming down down the pike, um, and it's, it is kind of odd because glam is so huge in England and it's this thing that excites the kids with rock and roll and haircuts and, and jumping around and all of the things that, you know, you kind of get the sense or at the sort of cultural and experiential core of like becoming excited by the arrival of Chuck Berry and, and Elvis Presley or by the arrival of Motown and these type of, of, of approaches to songcraft and selling cultural products you know and he doesn't he doesn't pick up the the thread with with glam at all yeah and i think that's i i attribute it to you know glam's failure to break in the u.s i mean t-rex had a big hit with bang it gone get it on but uh you know that was the end of it and and t-rex is one of those there was some success with like roxy music and, a little bit, know, yeah, and 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 Bowie, Bowie got quite a bit of hype and laid the groundwork for his future success. You know, when he switched to to white soul music and and you know the success of fame, but um, you know, outside, main man manager. Outside of L. A. You know, for some reason, L. A. Got glam rock, and 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 yeah. they produced a number of sort of glammy bands, and and. Oddly, I think you're right. You know, other than that, there's almost no glam that comes out of the United States. 
Yeah, and I want to shout out for New York as well. And Ed does a good job of covering the New York Dolls as well as the Stooges. Right. But but he also misses the connection. Kiss was the expression of American glam rock. I mean, Kiss was watching the New York Dolls and, uh, you know, coming out of the same scene, they just had a certain retrograde mentality or whatever that they recognized what would work from that in the U.S. and what wouldn't, and they, you know, also added the Kabuki theater elements and the monster movie stuff and made this ridiculous spectacle, and then honed their music so it sounded as much like, say, humble pie as possible, and and didn't strike the FM radio audience as anything different, you know, and, and they sort of slip under the cover. ACDC would do this later on as another group that had a lot in common with punk, had the energy, but um, sort of deliberately chose to sort of wave the classic rock flag and not signal to the very conservative white American audience, you know, we, we are on your side. We're not that new thing from England. We're not affiliated with gay people, for one thing. I mean, the homophobia was, was right. Very, right. very powerful in that, you know, and, and I think it's easy to dismiss KISS, um, you know, if you're of Ed's generation or if you're of younger generations, but if you're a Gen Xer, KISS was absolutely pivotal. I mean, every eight-year-old boy in the country had right. all the KISS crap and, and the, the idea of rock and roll as a spectacle and, um, you know, larger than life, the theatricality was a huge thing. I want to switch, though. We talked about TV a little bit and how TV in America basically exiled rock and roll until the emergence of MTV in the 80s, which is outside the scope of this. But he does a good job talking about movies and the way that rock and roll movies go from, you know, Elvis movies uh, in the early 60s. And then the Beatles pick up the torch and are enormously successful with Hard Day's Night, less so with Help. But by, you know, Yellow Submarine, they're clearly losing interest in that project. But the movie as a medium plays this enormously powerful role. Ed calls it in, in the invention of the 60s. But documentaries like Monterey Pop and Woodstock right. and Gimme Shelter um, really do give people a chance to see these rock stars that they can only hear on FM. And it dramatically changes, I think, about the serious of, of how they're perceived and helps them forge this larger-than-life iconic aspect that you don't get from the B-movie treatment of Elvis and the Beatles. Yeah, I mean, the the sort of documentary treatment of rock with, you know, not just uh, uh, the movie about Woodstock or the concerts or whatever, but you start to get these other films, you know, like The Song Remains the Same, uh, The Kids Are All Right. And these movies start, you know, he doesn't really talk about this in the book, but those movies start showing up at like midnight movie showings, which is a whole another sort of subcultural track you could go down but you know when like when i can tell you that as a kid going to see you know midnight movies you know i was like 13 14 years old those movies were a big part of that of, of that sort of uh you know menu of films and not just the the documentaries but also like tommy uh, uh that are you know musicals or those kind of yeah it was a musical and and also, speaking of Kiss, you know, the Phantom of the Paradise. Yeah. Or what was, no, no, Kiss, the Kiss versus the Phantom. The yeah. Phantom of Paradise is another kind of one of those kind of cultish movies that, you know, were at, the, at those midnight films. Uh, sorry to mix those two up. But yeah, I mean, 
the the representation goes from being this really kind of exploitative, like okay, we have this this these these kids that are in these bands, or or there are these personas. Let's throw them into whatever kind of you know regular old movie stories we can get. I mean, I don't want to denigrate Hard Day's Night, which I think is is pretty amazing. Yeah, it's wonderful. But you do start to you start to move toward and has kind of a quasi documentary feel to it but then they immediately go to you know help and and these kind of ridiculous you know farcical spoofs whatever but you do have like especially with with don't look back uh you have the onset of these these sort of serious documentary treatments like showing this is what's going on and these are of course uh uh these visual representations that can be taken into the hinterlands of the United States, especially you know, big, wide, spread out United States, and people can begin to see these these personas, and it, and, it, and it helps rock and roll become something that is much more visual, you know, and 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 helps solidify you know the, the sort of arrival of of rock stardom, you know. Which is uh, it's it's definitely worth paying attention to if you're looking at like how technology and the use of technology helps forward form. Absolutely, and and let's hear one more song and then talk a little bit about the the rock critic press and and its successes and failures. And this is Big Stars Thirteen. Won't you let me walk you home from school? Won't you let me meet you at the pool? Maybe Friday I can get tickets for the dance. And that was Big Star's 13. And and Big Star is, is along with Moby Grape, one of these bands that coulda, woulda, shoulda, that was expected to be commercially successful at the time that had the backing, you know, uh, Moby Grape was backed by Columbia and Big Star was backed by Stax, which had been enormously successful uh, with African-American music up to this point and thought that they could break into uh, white rock and roll and, and seemingly should have, but got entangled with Columbia Records in this really tragic deal that, that, resulted in Stax Records essentially not getting distributed for a number of years. And Big Star was the casualty of that. And because you have something like this that's uh, designed to be popular art but doesn't become popular, it takes on this retrospect as it never would be popular and it becomes this alternative culture. But to me it seems like had Stax been able to get Big Star's records in the stores and get Big Star on the radio – Big Star would have sold units. Yeah, I mean, you would you would definitely think that by listening to the music. Uh, you know, of course, it's, it's hard to say what would you know what would happen in a sort of yeah alternative fashion. But uh, uh, you know, I I thought the I thought Ed's handling of 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 the sort of bungling of Big Star really dovetailed well with with business uh, uh, decision-making and, and, and how sort of uh, precarious, you know, the record industry could be. Because, you know, you had Stacks, like you said, they had this great success on African-Americans. 
and they were going to try and break into the rock and roll market and start selling units to white people, which is just in general, if you study like African-American business history or something like that's part of the Holy Grail is to be able to start a business where you're not just selling uh, to a, a segregated sort of ghettoized uh, you know, demographic, but instead you're able to like come up with this product of some sort that would sell to all of the United States, which means you know, you'd be able to get your product out to white people, white people would buy it, and you would have full access to what the economy has to offer. And Motown kind of is able to do that. You know, I mean, Motown put out some country singles and stuff like that, but they were able to sell, you know, largely black artists, you know, out into the world and, and have white people buy those records. Stax had some success, I assume, with selling African-American artists, but they try to get into this rock and roll thing and it just doesn't work because of, because of business, you know, mistakes that they've made. Right. Yeah. And, they, and, and Ed does a good job talking about that and talking about, you know, uh, the, the, the business acumen and the, the sweat and hustle that gets put into creating the soul scene in Philadelphia, even though some of those guys end up getting entangled in, in questionable business practices and, and that sort of thing. And so, you know, the, the the idea of of rock and roll becoming this juggernaut and it does it creates all this money and it begins to to spread out into all these different into these different uh mediums you know with tv saturday night live and and pop music you know and soul music with soul train and all these kind of things but you still have these stories like there's great artists there's people who have had real success in the business and still you know one bad decision and their momentum explodes and you have a band like big star who have artists who have had some success in, 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 in you know, Alex Chilton has had some success, success with uh, the box ups, just utterly like vanish it. Right. And becomes this, this kind of cultish product rather than uh, a, a big commercial success. And, you know, that's one of the interesting things about, the rock and roll business, you know, and yeah. it even shows the limits. I, I, I'm not sure how, uh, you know, how influential rock critics are if the marketing just falls flat, right? Like if, if the marketing process just doesn't, you know, get any air, any lift under its wings, I don't know what can be expected of, of the rock critics. So, you know, you can have these rock and roll dar and, and we do, you see, that's not, altogether unusual to see you know critical darlings never quite crest the the wave of, of commercial success yeah it becomes a sort of a, a cliche through the 80s that if a band is overly is successful with the critics first that they're never going to be successful with a mass audience and you know rem and u2 overcome that and eventually you know there's a wave of bands that succeed more and more and by the early 90s you have the whole grunge explosion but big stars kind of the bifurcation is and they're unable to stop led zeppelin you know i mean rolling stone magazine first comes out and is so influential that eric clapton breaks up cream because he wants to be in the band you know and, and get that he's just simpatico with with the aesthetic that the writers and editors of rolling stone are pushing but just within a few months 
they desperately want to stop Led Zeppelin for whatever reason and shit on Led Zeppelin as much as possible and can't. Although they do stop the MC5 or play a big role in stopping the MC5. And Lester Bangs, of all people, is the one, you know, the hatchet man who just absolutely pillories the MC5 in his first review of them. And basically extolling every, you know, condemning everything he would come to extol about them as a great band later on. Um, so that's kind of a fascinating period. But I want to get into one other topic before we wrap, and that's the treatment of Southern rock and this whole backlash, which I think is a big part of the era that I think Ed uh, gives short, short shrift. He wants to talk about the the outlaw cowboy movement um, and he doesn't quite ever get to it uh, he, he talks right. about the beginnings of it but but which is another aspect of this but but this ascendancy of southern culture in the 70s i think is a big part of the swing the the swing back and forth you know in the 60s we swing towards integration and it's almost a cultural reprise of the civil war you know failure of reconstruction dynamic in the 1860s and 70s and i'm not saying that Leonard Skinner or Smokey and the Bandit are the Ku Klux Klan because um, although in recent years Leonard Skinner has and Charlie Daniels at all have become more and more uh, right. uh, you know vocally that way but if you read about Leonard Skinner and you'd compare them with the Almond Brothers I mean somebody like Dwayne Almond played with Wilson Pickett you know was bottle buddies with Wilson Pickett and had you know Jim Johnson in the band I mean the the, the Almond Brothers knew African American music in a very real way they didn't get it from British bands they got it from the source and they, and but, they, had, they had African Americans in the band absolutely yeah yeah and and made a big point of that and um but just barely a generation later Ronnie Van Sant and his crew in Florida they're getting their version of the blues by way of the Rolling Stones and free. And, you know, I, I, um, there's, a, you know, and, and they're waving the Confederate flag around. And Ronnie Van Zant does a very artful job of never quite picking a side, which allowed him to sort of unify the audience. He wasn't offensive um, to people who are racially conscious, but he was also welcoming to people who were not and and there's this sort of the 70s or this period of sort of welcoming back the good old boys into the culture the the southern poor whites it's sort of like the deal is if you stop hosing people you stop using the n-word you stop sicking german shepherds on people who want to eat at the lunch counters you know give up the fight uh for school integration and restaurant integration and we'll let you back into the culture and and i feel like ed doesn't really engage with that because he underrates bands like ZZ Top and even somebody like Leon Russell that I'm not personally a fan of. Leon Russell was a big, big deal. I mean, he's he's the guy who connects Phil Spector grandiosity to British groups like Eric Clapton, like George Harrison, like Joe Cocker, you know, and brings it all together. And for a brief period, is the bi biggest act going. Yeah, I mean, you know, part of this second you know, stab at at at, uh, at rock and roll history, and is is sort of held up by just how I think widespread pop music, rock and roll, country, all this it, it, it starts to fan out. And uh, when he, I think that you know, you talk about outlaw country. I mean, he hinted just at the fact that country music. Is, is kind of small potatoes, you know, in the 60s. And 
coming into the early 70s. But it, he hints at the fact that it's going to explode and that this explosion is going to be kind of connected with this Southern culture, right? This, this kind of export of, uh, of a new version, a sort of updated version of Southern culture. But you're right, he doesn't, he doesn't quite get to a point where he's explicit with that setup. And I, I absolutely noted while I'm reading it, I'm like, he's, he's right there on the same page as talking about Leonard Skinner and the Almonds, but he doesn't quite manage to get at this kind of this sort of cultural underpinning. And, I, and part of me thinks that's just because he, I think he has a tendency to, to try and, and soft play a lot of, of this, these questions about integration. that I think it's important to him. I think he, he absolutely recognizes it, but he doesn't want to beat, you know, the reader over the head with that and instead wants to allow the reader to sort of discover it and think about it on their own. But in, 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 the, in the case of, of, you know, sort of, if you want to say that there's a notable sort of difference in shading between the Allman brothers and between Leonard Skinner, you know, he, he, he takes you right up next door to it, but he doesn't, he doesn't want to, to make some sort of explicit statement about that. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. I mean, that's, 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 I guess that's okay, you know. <laughs> yeah, but there's so many stories to me, like the the weekend, I believe it was in Hawaii, when Stevie Wonder opens for the Rolling Stones on a Friday and ZZ Top opens on, for them on a Saturday. And, you know, that's great for the Stones. They're very hip at the time and picking two brilliant artists up and coming. And Stevie Wonder gets booed off stage. You know, the new ZZ Top documentary has one of them, I think Dusty Hill, going, you know, Stevie Wonder. Like he understands how great Stevie Wonder is and, and the thought of Stevie Wonder being booed on stage. He can't understand it because he's a music head. And ZZ Top gets, you know, gets encores. Nobody gets encores opening up for the Rolling Stones. And to right. me, it's like it's one part straight up racism on the part of the audience. But it's also a split because superstition aside stevie wonder's not really bringing the hard rock he's bringing incredible great music great dance music great pop music but he's not really bringing heavy hard rock and that's zz top's whole value add they're essentially taking john lee hooker songs and putting them through marshall amps and understanding how to to get the tempo so that somebody raised on cream and led zeppelin will get this music and you know i think i think ed leaves that out and that's something um that I'm just wrestling with as, as somebody who lived through that culture. And, and it took me years to even hear Stevie Wonder. I mean, I, as a kid in Borger, Texas, you just did not hear black artists on FM radio, period. And my family was self-consciously liberal and pro-integration, but our record collection was segregated, you know? And, and, yeah, and yeah, well, I mean, this is what we were talking about earlier and how difficult it, it starts to become when the, the goal is, Let's live together and kind of cross pollinate in all of the in, in all of the various ways that that we build our lives. You know, I I don't think Ed specifically uh, talks about you know the TAMI television taping back in '64 or so had a number of artists from that time and they were black and white artists and it, it was sort of topped off by a set from James Brown who like literally burns the house down, right? 
like he's just out of control and puts on this historic sort of presentation of his music and his dancing and all this kind of thing. And then the Rolling Stones come on and they're kind of new to the game at this point. And, you know, as is the case with a lot of those early uh, uh, sort of, you know, viewings of, of Mick Jagger, he seems kind of tentative, you know, and, and figuring yeah. out like, just how far can I go? And he does this strange little kind of duck walk kick during his to try to try, you know, the way it looks like if you if you watch the 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 show that ends up being produced as a result of these tapings, it looks like those two bands play one after the other, and it makes it look like Mick Jagger is trying to compete with James Brown, and Mick Jagger certainly was 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 watching James Brown. But the reality is is that James Brown's band played. And then they cleared the studio of all those fans. And then like an hour or so later, the Rolling Stones played to a completely different set of fans, right? Yeah. And so that, that, that kind of gets at this, just this persistence. It's, it's hard to, to, to finish uh, uh, integration and assimilation and, and these kind of things. It takes, it takes time. It's not going to be something that happens because you, you, you just want it to happen. And there are going to be forces, especially commercial forces and the desire to, to, to please people and make people comfortable and make them, you know, uh, uh, consumers in a way that, that is profitable. There's there, that, those are goals that are going to be met in the short term, like in the immediate. Right. Yeah. So they're like, okay, let's, <laughs> why take a chance? We're just going to move all these fans out of here. We're going to bring in all these kids that we know want to see the Rolling Stones. And we're not going to try and, you know, we're not going to try and do the hard work of introducing different styles or different crowds or whatever on this. We're, we want a, a, a raucous response to each of these artists. And so we're just going to make sure that the audiences that are going to provide that kind of response are there. And I think that that, you know, we, early in, in our discussion today, we were talking about integration and that sort of thing. And, and I, I was mentioning just that, you know, it's, it's, there are these structural things and there are, are sort of, cultural practices and community practices and all this that really wants you, you know, it's not as easy to move beyond that as, as demonstrating that you want to. And it's not as easy to, to put new structures in place as it is to like have the Supreme court come out and say that, you know, separate and equal is no longer the law. But then after that, you know, you have decades of fighting over this kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Working, maybe, maybe, maybe we're in Puerto Rico, like you say, with, with backlash, you know, where suddenly it's like, yeah, well, now we're going to take this rock and roll and we're going to slap a, you know, a Confederate flag on it. And we're going to, and we're going to slap a Confederate flag on, on this car, the Dukes of Hazard, and, you know, Smokey and the Bandit and, and all this kind of, kind of, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Waylon and Willie and the boys. And, 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 and yeah. I do want to be clear that Waylon and Willie were, self-consciously pro-integration. I mean, they were the big advocates of Charlie Pride, Waylon's hanging out with Muhammad sure. Ali, you know, and along with Johnny Cash. They're sending a message in country music that outright racism is no longer acceptable and we're not going to put up with it. But at the same time, culturally, their fans and the Leonard Skinner fans are, and the Hank Jr. fans are the same people, you know, and, and there's not a lot sure. of black faces at Willie and Waylon shows. Um, well, let's hear again the Stooges search and destroy and then, and then wrap this up.
And that was Iggy and the Stooges Search and Destroy. Iggy, the Stooges Mark II with James Williamson on lead guitar and under David Bowie's wing, produced by David Bowie, mismixed by David Bowie. Um, and the one last aspect I want to get into on the integration and backlash front that we haven't brought up is that this was an era of enormous violence and crime, not just street riots that were politically motivated, but just straight up muggings, rapes, robberies, and murders. I mean, this is the golden age of the serial killer, and street violence is just out of hand, and people are still trying to figure out what the heck happened. It, you know, Was it lead in the gasoline and, and, and all these other theories, and we don't have an answer to that. <laughs> but the reality is, you know, it would be difficult enough to integrate just with the differences in cultural experience and background and cultural mores if you didn't have this huge wave of violence. But when you combine, you know, sudden integration along with um, this just enormous burst of, of crime, uh, this emergence of hard drugs in the U.S., you know, heroin and cocaine are suddenly everywhere. And we can, you know, one ponder, was the CIA doing that on purpose or was it just economics uh, – you know, it, it's impossible to figure out in the context of this show, but I think that acts like the Stooges are reacting to this reality. And, you know, and, and like Sly Stone, oh, yeah. you know, there's a riot going on and beyond is 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 dealing with this darkness that is undeniable. I mean, it's, it's the Hunter S. Thompson Hells Angels strain of the hippie culture. It's not all Tom Wolfe and the acid test. It's it's. There's this American ugliness and the Manson family and this violence and, and, and you know, and, and as the people on the bottom of the economic totem pole, African-Americans did what every ethnic group has done in American history, which is move into crime in a big way, you know, and you have the emergence of black gangs and black leaders. And so um, anyway, I just want to get your thoughts on that whole aspect and, yeah. and do you think that's a factor in why punk wasn't commercially viable at the time like why the velvet underground and, and the stooges were just so rejected by the hippies because they just couldn't deal with the reality or what well i i think you know there's a there's a, a couple of different things you said about them. one i want to make sure to, to to note that ed also does a very commendable job of locating this kind of working class uh, desire for visceral rock and roll, et cetera, in Detroit. And yeah. that, and, and so that kind of, you know, Detroit is becoming the Rust Belt. Detroit is the locus of these, these terrible riots. You have the, the very well-off, you know, Detroit suburbs, as opposed to the the inner city, which is just being horrifyingly hollowed out, and it's it's a very good. Again, I don't think it's by accident that he he brings Detroit up as much as he does, and in the ways that he does. I think he he's inviting the reader to consider that Detroit is this you know location that reflects changes that are going on in the United States. Uh, economically, demographically, you know, people moving out to the suburbs, white flight, all of these kinds of things, and that are crushing the dream of integration, that are that are crushing the, you know, the the values that America had taken on and that the West had taken on, you know, following World War II and trying to forward democratization 
and uh, egalitarianism and these sort of things. And I think that my sense is that the Ed forwards uh, Detroit as an important hub for these changes and in, in, in attitudes for to get us to look at that. But you know, you played uh, Search and Destroy, and I think that's a good choice. I think it really sums up a lot of what was going on, and 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 it and it, and it brings up something that we haven't spoken of at all in this conversation, which is the Vietnam War yeah. and the way that 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 protest over the Vietnam War and a rejection of the war dovetailed with the civil rights movement and you know civil rights protests and by the time you know late 60s and early 70s show up you know the leadership of the country you know nixon is using these tensions to help build this divide in our culture that if you ask me still exists and and, and still has wind in its sails today that was first blown into those sails all the way back in the late sixties, you know, and that, you know, the, the, the dream of, of, uh, of integration and of, of the war on poverty and the great society, all that stuff kind of gets torpedoed. You know, you go from the tremendous, uh, optimism that came with the Kennedy presidency and, you know, just I think it, it, as late as the early 60s, you have this kind of community feeling, a sort of desire to make the country better and to make sacrifices to to bring about these positive changes and to and to realize some of the promise of the country that had not yet been realized. And then just a short while later, it just diffuses. It just it, it gets exploded. It runs up. Up, up along the, the 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 rocky shoals of of just how difficult it is to get that kind of work finished, you know, you reach points where it it starts to get really difficult to to make you know forward progress, and that gets mixed with with the rejection of the Vietnam War, and you end up with you know expressions in rock and roll coming out of out of you know people like Iggy Pop and the Stooges. And search and destroy works whether you're talking about the Detroit riots or you're talking about these forays in the Mekong Delta, you know. And it's uh, it's it, it's it's where rock and roll begins to to reassert itself as something that can you know sort of express transformative and tr- transgressive ideas. Absolutely. And what, go what, ahead. One other. Go go ahead. I'm sorry. No, you go ahead. No, but no. I do want to talk about. Well, I just want to, I wanted to, to mention the fact that. You know, the book also misses out on garage rock altogether. Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, he does mention the seed, but garage rock is this huge, you know, he talks about the split between hard rock and, and soft rock, Beatles and Stones. Well, I mean, garage rock is kind of this widespread kind of angry and aggressive guitar-driven foray into that darker aspect of the Rolling Stones, you know? Yeah, and, and it's grassroots, and it's originally called punk rock as an insult because, you know, punks are people who get raped in prison, and these right. were bands that 
generally couldn't play as well as, say, you know, the Paul Butterfield blues band and generally didn't have the financial backing of the major labels the way the San Francisco scene did. And, and right. you know, and it and they would have hit singles here and there, but rarely would you have an artist that had a, a sustained career. Even somebody as great as the 13th Floor Elevators had one barely hit single and then, you know, falls apart uh, largely through, you know, drug abuse and everything else. But yeah, that is a, a massive um, uh, blind spot in this book. And, and I hope to cover that in future episodes because, well, yeah, but go ahead. Well, I was, what I was going to say is that, you know, just to sort of sneak this in at the end, is he also doesn't, and, and this is kind of understandable because it's, quasi obscure and certainly neither the garage rock nor proto rap are going to produce uh artists that show up in the charts etc but he he doesn't really get around to talking about like gil scott heron or the last poets or whatever and the only reason i bring that up is because you know these are these voices both black and white that are on the fringes and that they are pointing towards what is already establishing itself in 74 and 75 as the other side of what's coming, right? Punk yeah. rock and rap. I mean, rap is going to eventually, I mean, you could say rap and hip hop essentially takes over pop music. You know, yeah. Eventually. In the nineties and, and, so, and punk makes a run out of it in the nineties as well. Um, that's right. And, these, and so that's what's coming down the pike. And, and, and those are, you know, especially garage rock, just it never goes away. And it's, it, there's such an outpouring of this kind of snotty, you know, we're in the basement, we're in our garages, we're playing these little smoky clubs. That it, it's, it, I was surprised that he didn't find a way to pay a little more attention to that. But uh, again, they didn't produce anything in the charts, and so it kind of his his, his methodology seems like it, it, it understandably misses that. Yeah, and yeah. I, and I, I, I I hate to make it sound like I didn't like this book because I I did like the book, and I I think that most people if, if they read it they're going to find it really uh, informative, and it's a breezy read, and. Uh, and I think he accomplishes what he's setting out to do, even if he, he's not really able to hide his, his, you know, the distance at which he holds a lot of the, the, the art that he ends up discussing in the book. Yeah, absolutely. To sum up, I think it's an impossible task to, to summarize the history of rock and roll in two short volumes. Uh, he's a right. brilliant writer. He, he does a great job of creating a, an easy to read coherent narrative that that touches on so many big points he pulls out big thematic issues so it's a brilliant job and if anything i'd rate the first volume as a five-star masterpiece and the second volume is a three and a half or four star really good effort so yeah, yeah definitely not denigrating ed who i consider a mentor and teacher in this and and you know would be really thrilled if i came even a fraction of matching the quality of work and volume of work right. he's produced over time, but anybody's going to have blind spots and, and that's what we're talking about. So that's, that's another episode of let it roll. What have we learned? Guest star in Yuri Campbell. Yuri, I hope we have you back soon. Uh, I hope so. I look forward to it. Thanks. Right, thanks. thanks. Follow the let it roll podcast on Twitter at let it roll cast 
and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. We'll take a couple of weeks off and return with Season 9. We've got a lot of treats in store, including interviews with Gary Giddens, Alana Nash, Ben Merlis, and many more. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can check out all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. History of Rock and Roll, Volume 2, 1964 to 1977, The Beatles, The Stones, and The Rise of Classic Rock is published by Flatiron Books. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com.